Hello there, I'm Miranda Gretton and this is Take a Moment with NCHC, the show where we talk to you and your colleagues about experiences that affect you. Listen on your drive between patients or in your downtime, whenever you get the chance to take a moment. Hi Miranda, I'm John Webster, I'm the Trust's Deputy Chief Executive and Director of Strategy and Transformation. I've been with the Trust a little over a year now uh, in that role. So, John, have you always lived in Norfolk? Do you live in Norfolk, first uh, off? Yeah, I've I've never lived in Norfolk, actually. Um, I was brought up in Suffolk, went to university in, in the Midlands to Leicester and, and settled in that area. I spent a bit of time in Essex, which was uh, just with a, a change in job role. But I've lived in Stamford in Lincolnshire, actually, since 2003. Moved there when my kids were very little and they've now both grown and flown the nest. But um, but we've decided to stay there. So Stamford's lovely. So I think we we kind of took a decision that I do a bit of traveling, if you like, for the different roles that I've had over the years and um, just sort of sell the kids in one area, really. Uh, so, yeah, we've been there for yeah nearly 20 years now beautiful place to live but um, equally so is Norfolk so all those places I'm traveling into to work probably Norfolk is my favorite of all of them actually and you know I've worked in Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire and other such places and in London as well Uh, but yeah Norfolk is lovely but um, well now that the kids have grown and and flying off um, it's a possibility in the future I suppose to think about moving but, but no I've never lived here. What was your very first job in an NHS setting? So I'd spent, after leaving university, three years with a management consultancy working on business cases for capital development, so new hospital buildings and that sort of thing. That was kind of my first introduction, I suppose, to NHS working. I wasn't going to go any further in consultancy without kind of direct NHS experience. So I, my first NHS role um, was a corporate business planning manager at the Derbyshire Royal Infirmary. So I was living in, in Leicester and travelling to Derby. I was in that role for probably a couple of years, then did actually get a job back in Leicester at Glenfield Hospital, which was a deputy director role of contracts and planning. But um, yeah, so my first experience working in the NHS was kind of three or four years working in the acute sector. Interesting. So not coming from a clinical background, but kind of flying into an NHS setting nonetheless, did you find that was a bit of a hindrance, kind of not having ever, you know, laid your hands on a patient, as it were? Not really. I mean, the the kind of planning roles I was in, I suppose, were quite well defined. But I mean, for me, it was really important to understand the clinical operational side of of, of the NHS trusts. And um, so a lot of time for me was spent with clinicians sort of developing business plans. It was at a time, I mean, you're going back because I'm so old, we're going back to probably the early 90s, I suppose, or mid 90s. And it was it was just prior to Tony Blair coming into power as part of the Labour government back then. And that was actually a real shift in terms of emphasis for the NHS. And it was much more performance focused and managing waiting lists and how long you spent in A&E departments, which, you know, we've had different flavours of government along the line, but actually those principles still hold. But that was kind of when it changed. Um, so for me, in my roles, it's it, 
certainly early on in my career, a lot of time spent with clinicians and, and that was enormously helpful because you know, it's very difficult to have a conversation with a clinician if you don't understand a little bit about what they do. Um, and, and actually, you know, you're not going to develop plans in isolation without sort of getting feedback from clinical staff. Um, so it, it was brilliant for me because, you know, it wasn't a conscious decision really to enter the NHS. It just kind of happened. But actually, I, I landed in two very good roles early on in my career. Um, and gave me a real broad sort of knowledge and understanding of how the NHS works. Yeah, you're right. You, you can't really do any role in the NHS without having been and seen what's going on on the coalface, as it were. So that must have been yeah. really helpful. Looking at your career to date then, what's the timeline from so coming from the Derby job coming into Norfolk? What was, like you say, you've been within the, with the Trust for a year. What were you doing just sort of prior to that? Prior to that, I was the Director of Strategic Commissioning for the Norfolk and Waveney CCG. So I came to Norfolk in 2017. Um, so I got the Accountable Officer role at West Norfolk CCG as was uh, back in 2017. And then the, the five CCGs in Norfolk and Waveney merged in 2019, I think it was. Um, and I took that role at that point. And with the integrated care system developing, I took an opportunity really to come to the trust uh, just a bit over a year ago. A discussion with Josie and I, I came on secondment to the trust just a bit over a year ago, uh, but my contract is now with NCHNC, which is great. And I, I just really felt that and I've, I've said it to an awful lot of people since I've been here, just the nature of this organisation, the culture of it, uh, it's incredibly welcoming to people. And I think people have a real sense of of working as together as a team here, and it's, it's really evident. And support to our teams and staff is obviously at the forefront of, of what we try and do. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been a great time here. And I, I've, I've loved my time in Norfolk, actually. It, often it's not certainly in sort of more recent times it's not been a conscious I must do this and then I'll move on to do that role and then this role it, it kind of you know opportunities present themselves I suppose and you, you just try and take the ones that you think work for you and work for the organisation and it very much felt the right time to to make a move to NCH and see when I did. Interesting so given your experience with you know the CCG and, and us as a system across Norfolk and Waveney I'm really interested to talk to you about that because I think there's such a huge opportunity for collaboration there and I, I personally feel that we don't tap into that maybe as much as we could what are your thoughts on that you know how we could how do you see us working together more with the other organizations within the system? I think as the work around the integrated care system develops I think there's a lot of willingness to collaborate and and I think you know we are a collaborative organization you know we're an integrated organization in terms of our position with with NCC and social care and and working across the different sectors it's going to be quite a difficult transition though I don't think you know it's very easy to say oh yes let's collaborate on things but actually when it comes to the crunch even within the system as it's designed you know and it'll become operational from the 1st of July we are still statutory organisations and we have statutory commitments to meet and so I think some of the challenges we'll face is um, you know I hate to root it all down to money but sort of money conversations are going to be quite difficult I think um, in a system that is is very financially challenged um, has a lot of operational issues and and actually some of the recovery phase um, post pandemic is going to be less than 
and straightforward and so you know people will know sort of growth in waiting lists and that sort of thing and how we're going to try and tackle those things together my personal view is that i think we can offer more to our patients doing things together than we can as individual organizations just operating our own remit um, and so part of my role is to actually think about how we develop those relationships across the rest of the system there's a fair degree of trust that we need to build and that's not just the organizations might not trust NCHC at all but it you know we're not used to working in this kind of way we are at the margins but actually um, the whole principle of changing legislation around integrated care systems is that we formalize some of those collaborations together so I think it's going to be quite challenging but but for me I think it's a really exciting opportunity yeah I agree and I think it, in terms of you know those sort of financial conversations you're absolutely right but I think there's also a piece about that about learning you know we do a lot of surveys we're always interested to know what the outcome of those surveys are and I know that staff sometimes feel that they're telling us what they want to change and then you know nothing actually happens so I wonder if there is a piece there about learning from the other organizations and trying to capture that and formalise those processes where we can sort of go out to other places, you know, to the James Paget, to LNUH and, you know, see what they're doing really well and what can we take from that and, and implement here and vice versa. I mean, I'm sure that we're leading in a lot of areas and we could kind of push that learning out. So that I think in terms of those collaborative conversations, that could be really interesting. I suppose it's just about how we facilitate that and whether that's an easy thing yeah. to do. I think it is quite straightforward to do, actually. I think um, one of the problems I think we faced in developing the system is that we've possibly given too much time to structures and and you know how organisations you know might work together in in a structural sense, as opposed to are there some priorities that we could work on together that are clearly going to have benefit for our patients? I would much rather start a conversation and get on with it and do some stuff together um, and try it out, test it. If it doesn't work, we haven't lost too much. We can redevelop our plans and work in different ways rather than, you know, waiting for these structures to be formed that we all need to operate within. So I think you know, we're, we're making some headway in that. I mean, we've got some really exciting projects underway. I mean, one in North Norfolk, which is really great working across community nursing and, and practice nursing, particularly around wound care and frailty. And the team's coming together very much as a single team, as opposed to a set of community nurses, a set of practice nurses. Things like that are, are you know, not hugely transformational, but, but they're beginning the journey of thinking, you know, how are we going to work together differently in the future and, and that's really good. We're also doing some work currently actually with the Norfolk and Norwich and with the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in, in Kings Lynn, um, sort of setting priorities really where we can work much more closely together across acute and community services and not the traditional how can we more quickly get people out of an acute hospital bed and back to home or into one of our beds in the community. Um, but just thinking about how we can combine our, our staff resource working in different ways. Um, and all of this comes from the benefit for the patient as opposed to the benefit for the organisation. And, and our staff work in that way all the time. They build those relationships. I think what we're trying to do is just sort of formalise those a bit more, encourage them to develop a bit more. And, and you know, this has never been about uh, 
um, sort of structural mergers or any such sort of discussion. I know some of that has worried staff in the past as well at NCHNC. Is it going to be a takeover by another organisation? But for me, it's very much about what we can bring into the system in support of the system, how we can work differently going forward. Forget the structure. If they change, they change in time. But actually, the principle for us is all centred around the patient and how we can improve the experience for them. That's really interesting. And I think you're right about it's building those on those relationships and transformation is it's a marathon, not a sprint, isn't it? I mean, it's never going to be an overnight thing to transform something, whatever it is. It always is going to take time. It takes cultural change. It's it, there's a lot to it. Do you find that quite frustrating sometimes, the fact that that can take a lot of time? Not that it takes a lot of time, but but just that we progress it. And I think, you know, you're you're absolutely right. This isn't sort of a you know, some sort of explosive change that happens overnight. It's got to be built on. You know, we've we've had sort of decades of working um, as statutory organisations in our own organisations. You know, the era of payment by results actually drove the behaviours that you went within your organisation. You just tried to do the best for that organisation in financial terms and in other terms. What we're seeing now through the change in legislation is very, very different in terms of, you know, what the aims and objectives are for that. And that's going to take time to change. I think the biggest frustration is when you, it's almost when, because I've been in sort of working in the NHS since, what, 93, I think, 1993, is the kind of perpetual change in government and and slightly different policies emerging and just when you think you're getting traction on something you know there's another change that comes into play that that we need to respond to within the NHS that's more frustrating the the exciting bit for me is how you see the way our staff and our teams and clinical teams come together to work in different ways you know with the objective being improvements for patients again and 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 that is exciting but it will take time to implement i certainly don't find that frustrating i think the fact that you know we're we're making progress is very exciting actually and i think there'll be much more of that to come i think we can definitely see a lot of that over the last kind of couple of years even with the pandemic I think actually because of the pandemic maybe you know the fact that we were able to turn on a sixpence and change some of our processes to fit in to align with what was happening in the world so quickly and that's amazing the fact we were able to do that but changing that focus from financial pressures to patient outcomes obviously that can only be a good thing clinical staff and well all frontline staff really are key to that aren't they so how how are they involved in those conversations across the system not just you know like i said responding to surveys well certainly at a system level venue um, medical director is and and carolyn in particular are very hooked into sort of uh, system conversations around you know clinical developments particularly so there's been a lot of clinical engagement around the development of a system clinical strategy which is sort of setting out over the next few years how clinical services will develop. Um, so there's good engagement, I think, overall with clinicians. Um, and similarly, internally, we're in the process of the moment of, of updating the trust strategy. That will involve uh, a lot of clinical engagement over the summer and engagement with the wider teams within, within the trust. So we always need to take the opportunity to think about how we do it. But what we shouldn't do is sort of I suppose constrain clinical teams from from trying to develop themselves you know I'm not sitting here saying I've got all the answers in terms of how clinical services should develop but I think we need to 
develop the right conditions for clinical staff and teams within the trust to be able to develop their services. I think what the legislation is doing is kind of giving us the permission to join with other partners and collaborate in different ways with other organisations where traditionally we might not have done. So that is, I think, you know, is a, a bit of freedom to develop, I think, is what's important. And, you know, we're certainly trying to embrace that within the trust. You know, getting the views of our patients too. So, you know, where I'm saying I've not got all the clinical answers because I absolutely haven't, you know, part of my role is creating the right conditions to make those conversations happen. But equally, you know, we don't want to be telling our patients, you know, this is this is what we provide, so this is what you'll receive. So actually part of the process of joining everyone up in this kind of conversation is the patient experience as well and the patient voice in, in how we adapt, change, develop our services in the future. So that's equally important. To, to keep an eye on too. There was a new format of patient voice at board recently, wasn't there? I know that some patients in the north came and they just sent videos, didn't they, on their iPhones um, of them talking about the vaccination programme and how it was going out to homes and, and how successful that had been. And I think that kind of thing really needs to be embraced, doesn't it? That we we need those voices, but it's not just necessarily the people we've always gone to. Now we have the technology to say literally anybody, any patient, regardless of your mobility, whether you can make it into a boardroom on a particular day to talk to us, you can feed back. And it's, yeah, listening to that and, and making sure yeah. that they're heard. I mean, that's been a big change, I think, at, at trust board level. So each meeting now is opened by a, a patient story and and people from the, you know, colleagues from the places coming to uh, present on their service areas. And um, you made the point earlier about learning and um, only by hearing what people's experience is and thinking about how we can adapt and change things in response to that. But actually the pandemic in many ways made that easier for us to accomplish because you're, you're right, it's just that, you know, we could meet people and we have done in their own homes and, and hearing from them around their experience. So so it's very powerful in terms of, um, you know, and, and really welcomed at board that we we get the patient voice and we get to understand their perception of our services. Yeah. Why are you in a leadership role over just kind of getting on, coming in every day, doing your job and going home? Why did you want to become a leader? Why do you want to lead people? Why is it important that you help us through this period of transformation? So I suppose to start with Miranda, I, I suppose it was never a conscious decision to be a leader, but leadership for me is all about people and it's about people before the organisations. I love being with people. I'd sacrifice a promotion for, for working in a better job, if you know what I mean, that I like doing with people that I like working with. And I think some of it for me is we can get tied up in organisations about developing plans and strategies and stuff like that. But but actually it's those relationships with people, supporting people to do their jobs that actually gets the job done. So for me, you know, I take a lot of pride actually in, in the relationships that I've developed across the system. Um, I'm always conscious I need to move those relationships to a different level. So there's one about, we talked a bit about building the trust, but it, it's now about making sure that we implement some things that are going to benefit our patients. I suppose my style is that uh, if, if there is such a thing as a leadership style, but one that I'm really intent on listening to what can change. I, I've never pretended that I had all the answers and I don't think that's that's the right thing to do at all. I think I mentioned a bit about kind of 
creating conditions and giving people support and freedom to develop things. And I think that is really important, I think, to teams that they know that someone's got their back, if I can put it that way, and um, and is there to sort of support them and bring them on. So I suppose I'm quite facilitative as opposed to directive in style. But that's kind of a bit about what leadership means to me. It's um, it's people first before the organisation and actually supporting people to grow. You've perfectly described a leader to me versus a manager. And I think it's that language is so interesting, isn't it? That we think of the exec as, as leadership. You know, it's a, it's a leadership role. We talk a lot about the word leader and the word leadership, less so nowadays about the word manager. And I think there is a lot to be said for that in terms of how far we've come with making sure people come first. Before, I think it was, you know, even five, six years ago, I think if people in managerial roles would have had quite a sort of feeling they have to be in control of everything and 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 sort everything out and be that sort of figure at the top. And it was a very hierarchical sense. I feel like we don't have that so much anymore in the trust, particularly, which I think is great. Do you see that as well? I, I, I do agree with it. And in fact, I've um, been the sponsor on a number of the leadership courses within NCH&C. And I think the way we talk about it as an organisation is leadership at all levels. You know, it's not just a director that can be a leader. Absolutely not. And it's it's about, um, again, sort of, you know, thinking, yeah, we need to manage tasks to get jobs done. And, and there's things we need to do day to day that absolutely we do. But but leadership is around creating those right conditions to to grow our people. And, and that's true at every level of the organisation. So certainly beginning of my career things were far more directive in terms of you know command and control and you need to do i think what excites me about the changes we're going through we've talked about the legislation changes is 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 giving that bit of freedom to develop things across the system um, and you can reflect that back from the system into our organization and right down through it um, I, I was just so impressed when i joined the trust about some of the programs that have been put in place for our teams and i mean i did the staff induction yesterday, trust induction yesterday, and we were talking about those programmes that are available to all people when they join us, and people are really encouraged to, to join those programmes as part of their own development and to grow themselves. Um, and it, it, it's a, a really impressive approach, I think, in the trust. And I, I know that people value going on those courses, so and, and they take something from that and they grow themselves. Yeah. And I mean, like you say, we've still got tasks we need to complete on the ground. There's still things that need to be done, those tick box exercises that still need to happen. But I suppose the difference between a manager and a leader is that the leader will say, why don't you want to complete those tasks? What's going on? You know, as a person on a personal level, what's happening? Really understanding their staff rather than just this job needs to get done. And I think that's where you really grow your people, isn't it? Where you you, you have those listening conversations. Do you think there's anything we could do within the trust to make those better in terms of kind of one-to-ones, PDRs? I think there's always areas where we can improve, certainly in terms of PDRs and the approach we take around appraisals and setting objectives. And uh, there's always room for improvement. But I mean, I think I, I certainly see it across the trust that that is kind of the approach that we take. So it is about developing our staff. I mean, I, I think as you were saying, that I was thinking, um, 
you should never second guess what someone's going through either and and all that is part of building that relationship and understanding across the team sort of you know what people might be going through might be a reason for why a particular piece of work doesn't get completed or whatever so it's not just jumping to conclusions and you can only do that through regular contact and I don't think there's necessarily a model that you can pull off the shelf and say that's how everyone should do it but I think that kind of contact and sort of understanding starting any one-to-one with you know how you're feeling as opposed to why haven't you done that piece of work you know it's, it's just to be encouraged I think. Thank you for listening to Take a Moment with NCHC. If you've enjoyed this podcast please visit the podcast intranet page to leave a comment and for details of our other episodes. You can also follow NCHC on all social media channels.